Yaate Hello. Welcome to Real Native Roots Untold Stories, a podcast by a Native woman with deep roots, hosted by yours truly, Vicki Katsuli Boy Oldman. I am a lover of stories, a connector, and a holder of wisdom keepers. Each month, we will be connecting with our Native relatives and exploring what medicine our guests share and offer to us. Please join me on this uncharted journey to learn, connect, and reflect. Ayahat, thank you. Greetings, relatives. How are you all on this beautiful day? The time is going so fast. It's just unbelievable. I don't know if it's because the older I'm getting, time goes faster. Because I felt like when I was in my 20s, it was slow. I'm reaching that milestone, you know, where I'm going to be hitting 50, which is a little surreal. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> I hope you're all well. Um, yeah, I just, what am I going to tell my listeners besides I have a poem ready? Um, I guess what was sitting with me this morning as I was getting ready for the day and usually I like to sit and just kind of look out into the window and that's what I'm doing right now. And two things came to mind. One was just like, I felt like this first quarter was like a fog. Like it wasn't really clear. And I think because there's a lot of emotions going on, it's hard to see things clearly. So that was the first thing that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this past quarter. The second thing that hit me was as I'm looking out the window, a smile came to my face because I'm witnessing this beautiful tree. It's a young tree. It's a baby tree. But when I came to this new place, there was no buds. It was winter. It was in, in November. And now I see the little buds. And it, I'm just like, oh, how cute. Really excited about seeing it bloom. And I get to witness. I get to witness this beautiful thing. It's the little things that we forget to just sort of slow down and just witness those beautiful moments. So... Take some time, slow down, and notice those beautiful moments. All right, so I'm going to read from this gentleman that I've been reading from in another book, Richard Wagamese. I think that's how you say his name. And I love his stuff, and so I've been collecting all his um, work. The name of the book is called One Drum, Stories and Ceremonies for a Planet. It begins like this. It begins as all things do with stories. When our ancestors gathered around their tribal fires, stories were told. As a human family, we have this tradition in common. Many have forgotten their beginnings, but next time you are out with people and it is a summer night and a campfire is lit, watch how everyone responds to it. As night falls and the flames climb higher, people regardless of their cultural background, will lean in toward the flame. Some will cup their chin in their hands. Others will lean forward with their elbows on their knees. Still, others might lean back in their chair and idle there, never taking their eyes off the fire. A persuasive quiet descends, and soon there is only the crackle of the fire, the snap of the logs. Everyone breathes more deeply. Everyone relaxes. 
This scenario happens everywhere around the world when people gather in a circle around a fire in the night. I believe it is because we all carry a specific cellular memory based on the spiritual feelings of togetherness, safety, and belonging. It is the basis of our human identity, community, and it formed in all of us long, long time ago. There is a particular magic that exists when the world is reduced to a flame and the sound of a human voice talking. We respond to that setting like children, wrapped with wonder and entranced by the possibility of the story. The teachers of our culture recognized this. They could see wonder on the faces. And so storytelling became a central tradition of the human family everywhere. Mm. This man is such a good writer. And what I loved about it is when he mentioned the cellular part of us just knowing from many, many, many years ago. Ah, yeah, this is a beautiful, beautiful writer. So I leave that with you. Now I'm going to introduce my guest. So I met him through work, my day job. <laughs> and he had worked for an organization at the time called the Native American Agricultural Fund, NAF. He was a program officer at the time. And I remember in the staff setting and, and hearing staff talk, there was just something about what he would say that just got my curiosity. And I noted his name. It's like future reference. I'm going to follow up. He would be a great podcast guest. And here he is. I'm really excited. So my guest is Dr. Michael Kotutua. I hope I said that right. Please correct me when you come on. Dr. Michael Kotutua Johnson. And he is a member of the Hopi tribe, which is located in Northern Arizona. And he has his PhD in natural resources from U of A, University of Arizona. And as I had said before, he's, he has worked with um, the Native American Agricultural Fund. He's also worked with USDA. Um, and now he's in this transient place. He accepted an offer to work with U of A as a faculty. And so he will be transitioning there. And you could definitely find articles and videos of him on the internet. He's done several scholarly um, publications. And he's also been on a movie, which I'll mention later on. And he has co-authored this publication that the federal government will release in 2023 called Indigenous Tribal Chapters for the National Climate Assessment 5. So my guest, Dr. Michael Johnson, he's all of that. And more importantly, people who do know him know that he's a humble guy. He's a simple guy. He's, he's a farmer with a great sense of humor. He drives a 1974 F-250 Ford truck. I think I got that right. He likes to cruise on his motorcycle. Laying low, he likes to just stay home. And we're going to talk about his home that he's created with his dog, Soya. I think that's how you say her name. Anyway, Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Say hello to our guests. How are you doing today? It's a beautiful Sunday today. Um, just was out there kind of checking the moisture on my field this morning, uh, making sure everything's still wet uh, since I cultivated my field just um, about three weeks ago and everything looks good. So I'm looking forward to this planting season. 
Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you're able to make it today. So, Michael, tell us your middle name. My grandfather gave me my middle name. It, it's Kotutua. It means uh, burning embers. It's like those uh, embers, those coals that you see that are passionately lit when the fire starts to die down. And so they're always, they always seem to guide my way. And so I'm a very passionate person, you know, and so that's, that kind of fits me real well. Well, the reading that I did actually fits your name as I was talking about campfires. Was there anything in the reading that spoke to you? No, I, I kind of like the stories, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of who we were about. You know, you had mentioned the community, you know, feeling in touch with the community at some point, uh, we seem to go back to the cellular state, if you, if that's what it's called. And, uh, to me, it's just one of familiarity and, uh, I really like, you know, the stories of things. And I think that's what binds us together. It's like when we become part of the story, we share those stories, like we have been doing out here for generations to generations. And so it's just kind of neat. I love that. We do become the stories, right? That's, that's beautiful. Speaking of stories, I know that you talk a lot about your grandpa and he named you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your family? Well, my parents are kind of the, the love connection, I guess. That's how I speak it. You know, they met at, at Princeton, New Jersey. My mom was uh, looking to be a missionary to the Indians, believe it or not. And she met my dad there. And, and so when they got married there up in uh, Pennsylvania, so a few years later, I was born. I got to uh, spend a lot of time out here. I primarily grew up a lot in Winslow, Arizona, which is about 70 miles from and currently living out in a little village called Pukutsmovi. And so they met and then about age, about nine or 10, after my dad was in the military for a long time, he would all drop me off out here, spend time with my grandfather, you know, who in his own way was a great farmer. Uh, I used to not like to come out here because I'd be up at 5.30 in the morning. We only had one TV station from Flagstaff <laughs> like that. And uh, one time I told him one time that I was bored. You know, I said, Grandpa, I'm bored. I'm bored. Boring out here. And he grabbed me the next morning at even earlier. We went out and hold weeds all day and fix the fence and do everything that farmers do. And I uh, never said that again. And so don't use that word anymore. But it was that's how basically how I learned how to farm was through my grandfather and other relatives that were in my family. Because Hopi agriculture goes deep. You know, it goes deep as long as we've been here. Um, we've been here for over 3,000 years. And so we just, we just know our environment really well. Mm. When you were talking about that, it went, came to me was one of your uh, videos I saw you were lecturing to some students and you had made reference to this petroglyph. Can you tell us a little bit more about that petroglyph? Yeah, it's a petroglyph commonly referred to as a Hopi Prophecy Rock. Uh, if you can Google those words in Hopi Prophecy Rock, you can see pictures of that. But basically, it's just for what my interpretation of what I've been told is just that it's our pathway. It's a pathway to sustainability, to who we are. You have, you know, we came into this world after emerging from three previous so that we believe we're in this fourth world. And so this is the world that this passed on. And so uh, it has two parallel lines on the top line. Uh, you'll have a bunch of figures holding hands and going up this going towards this crooked, uh, crooked staircase and the, the path ends abruptly. And then you have a gentleman down below who is with his planting stick going through his field with corn. And then his line goes all the way off the rock, continuous line off the rock. And so what's that telling us is that at some point during this fourth world time is that we will face tremendous obstacles. We will face tremendous barriers. You know, a lot of us will lose our traditional ways representing all the people up there. And then we'll just kind of forget who we are. And then, then that will abruptly end for us. But the bottom one tells us that if we are to adhere to our traditions, our farming traditions, our cultural ways of knowing, that we will continue into the next world. 
And so the thing that I like about this particular this particular petroglyph is that there's a line connecting those two paths. And that's a good thing because that tells us that those people who are kind of going in this modern approach to doing things and forgetting the traditional values, they still have a chance to come back down and to go back to what they were doing. You know, and for us, that's farming. And so uh, that's why I like that particular petroglyph. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think thank you for giving us uh, more details to that. I appreciate your interpretation and others that probably have also shared with you that interpretation. So I'm just thinking about your grandpa. What sort of fond memories do you remember of your grandpa and some of the wisdom that he offered you and how you still try to model that in your day to day? You know, um, I think one of the one of the things that I remember is that after we planted our, our fields, he would all challenge us to a foot race running across the field. And I was like, man, there's an old man going to run across the field, you know, and he told us that that helps the corn grow, you know, and so it's good after you plant that you run across the field as fast as you can to help the corn come up. And so I just remember that my grandfather, just an old guy, just out there running with us young kids and stuff like that, and just encouraging us to plant, to, to talk to our crops and things like that. And I think... When I'd go out there in the evening times with him, I'd hear him singing Hopi songs to the plants and stuff like that. So those are the fond memories I've had of him. Paying cash for everything, too. He never bought a truck without paying cash, you know, and so uh, he didn't have a credit balance or anything like you do today. And so his life was pretty much simple. And I really admired his faith. I really admired his faith. He'd be up every morning praying, and then I'd hear him praying before he goes to bed at night. Well, those are the kind of things that I value. Those are the kind of things I miss. He would wake up in the morning because at that time we had a coal burning stove in his old house and you would see a, a figure come out with a little like little white calf on and a white robe on and it looked like a little ghost and he'd be there putting <laughs> coal in the fire, <laughs> shaking it like that. And I thought, man, this is cool. Anyways, those are, those are just the fond memories that I have of my grandfather when I was growing up. So do you still run across the hills? Oh, yeah, man. I did that. There was, <laughs> last year, there was a group of youth came out there to help me plant or actually help me thin the corn. And so they came out there and we just had a couple of races across the field and it was fun. That's just, just part of who we are. That's part of culture. That's part of society. Uh, that's what makes indigenous people uh, beautiful because we're still practicing those for the most part, practicing what we believe. Thank you. I remember my family, they would grow corn with other families or like two or three other families in these big plots of land and they had like a system so like the younger ones would dig a hole right like they they and then someone behind them would plant the seeds and then someone behind them would cover it during covid i got excited i'm like you know what i'm gonna try to plant again and i was really surprised <laughs> that I could plant. I was able to plant some things. I was really sad that my corn came, but it, it was so tiny. And I remember a friend of mine telling me, sing to the corn, sing to your plants, because it's very humbling. So I, I'm in a new place. So I want to definitely do a little garden again and see if I can grow corn a little bit bigger this time. <laughs> I saw a picture of yours, I think you were making comments about the dew, the dew on the corn. And you're just like, this is such a beautiful thing. And I was like, mm, what is the dew? Because I remember seeing little dews on these plants when they were starting to grow. And so I'm curious about that. What was so beautiful for you when you saw that moment? It's just that they're coming up and nature's basically feeding them. You know, it's condensing. They're having little dew drops on them. Um, they're happy. You know, it's just nature's way of providing what, what we need. 
And so it was just, those are the kind of things that I really look at, you know, I, being a farmer, at least this type of farming, but it's, it's not so uh, much you're using, you know, big equipment like they do in the Midwest. You're actually becoming very intimate with your plants. They become a life of their own. And that's just what something we believe in too out here. There's nothing that just grows uh, by itself. And so uh, it's, it's beautiful to see the little ones come up from the ground after they've been in the ground for two weeks or so and coming up and just catch that first light. It's almost like a child being born into this world. They get that first glimpse of warmth that in that first glimpse of nurturing, you know, and so it's just a very beautiful thing to look at. The other thing I wanted to bring up when you're saying like things can't happen on its own, right? There's, we need, everything's sort of interconnected. And so it made me think about your sandcastle. You're using elements of mother earth to create this shelter. I'm curious about what, led you to creating this sandcastle. It's beautiful because you can oversee your plot, right? Or your gardens. I'm curious about what led you to wanting to create your own place like this. You know, back when I was, back when I was a young man, you know, um, we'd take, I'd go out there with my grandfather and I just said, one of these days, I'm going to build a a house up here, a small house. Uh, And so I did that. I started with a small house, just with the stones around there. And then I kept adding to it over the years. I started in 2004 and I happened to still work. I'm still working on it today and here it is 2022. Right. And so it's just something that, that was, has driven me. And I, and I, and I did it for a couple of reasons. One is of course, is to find myself a place, a shelter, a kind of an, a, a lone space where I can go out and think and, and do my writing. But the other thing too, is I wanted to have an example. I wanted to show the people out here that we can still build these things. We have been building this way for thousands of years. It's just that recently we've gotten away from that. And we're now we're accepting government housing, moving trailers up here, things like that we have to have because we can't afford anything else. But I just want to remind people that this is what we can do if we wanted to do it. And here I am just basically building it by myself. I've had help a number of times, but It's just a testimony to our culture and to who we can be if we continue to want to do that. And it kind of reminds me of that petroglyph on the rock. I'm I'm trying to do everything traditionally to the for the most part so that I can survive whatever comes down the pipe here. And so uh, it's just one of those things that I look at as being just a testimony to our heritage and to who we are as Hopi. Well, it's beautiful and it looks amazing. I love your sense of humor. You had recently posted something about not having an actual bathroom, like you had to go to an outhouse and then you created a little space for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I was just kind of, you know, I was had a visitor out here uh, probably two years ago and, and she was looking around and she saw my outhouse out there and she says, well, how can you live in such an uncivilized manner? You know, I'm like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and make myself a compost and toilet, put the outhouse inside my house. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had, I had fun doing that. And it was just, now I'm civilized, I guess. And it's just amazing about the type of people that you meet out there in the world who look at civilization as being Western frame, you know, having everything. You know, we've been more civilized. In fact, indigenous people in South America and North America were building pyramids, were building massive structures like Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde. At the time, they were having the Black Plague over there in Europe, you know. And so uh, when we talk about civilization, we were civilized to the max in our own way, you know? And so people just need to understand that, that there's different connotations and different, and people see things differently. And so 
you know, take a break and look at things once in a while. Don't just automatically assume that somebody's not civilized. And so it gives people this chance to slow down, I think. So, yeah. Yes, we were much more civilized. It's interesting how science, <laughs> speaking of science, right? Like they are proving things that we knew for so long. Like one thing I'll say is like smudge, right? We, we smudge or we burn cedar. There, there are certain properties in what it does for us in, in a spiritual way. And I saw this article where they actually were talking about how smudging really is good in that it, it's killing all the bacteria in, in, in the air. And so I just laughed because we didn't really need to like do all of the research and whatnot to prove and show how these herbs help us, right? So speaking of that, you showed a picture actually of the farming from your ancestors. And then you show what farming looks like now. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I know you got your PhD and you've been doing a lot of writing on this sort of work and what are you wanting folks to really understand about the importance of agriculture? Well, you know, my PhD is in uh, natural resource management. Um, I, I coupled that with looking at the indigenous land, man, indigenous land use management practices. And so, uh, but, you know, as you're going, as you're talking about the smudge and the sage and, and how we've done this thing, part of the whole dynamic of being a scientist and part of the number one rule is, is, can, is, this, is this experiment replicable? How many times can we do this over and over again and, and make sure that it's valid? And that's where I come in. I say, well, you know, indigenous people have been farming this way through a trial and observation for 10,000 or more or so years. We know what works, right? It's just, it's just trying to show the Western world that, you know, that we know what we're talking about. When we, we talk about replication, like some of the conservation methods here in the United States are all less than 100 years old. And yet ours are 10,000 years old. But unfortunately, when it comes to getting our practices acknowledged, we have to have them scientifically validated. And for what? We've done, we've done proven that. Now, I will give my hats off to the White House and the Biden administration for a memo that they released in November validating traditional ecological knowledge as a science. So now what we're trying to do is what people are trying to do is put guidelines to make sure that we're able to participate more fully in some of these federal programs. Now that's all well intended, but what I keep telling people is that a lot of this traditional ecological knowledge is not transferable. I cannot take what I grow here in Hopi and expect to have the same results in Iowa. But what I can take is my philosophy, my understanding of how important the earth is, what those things are, what they're about, how I can try to get more place-baked agriculture on a regionally basis, using regional crops that are out there that exist already and growing those, you know. Uh, but the, one of the main things that I still have troubling is, is to, in order to do that, the market system needs to change because it's geared on quantity and efficiency. And those two things are causing what they have, what they, were, what they have is what they call a, a, a clog in the system that not everybody's treated equally. And so... Uh, we need to fix that because unfortunately, one of the biggest polluters now in the United States of the study that was done is agricultural runoff. That means all those pesticides and herbicides that they have out there are just contaminating the environment further. I'll get off this in a second here because I like talking about science and what it means. But, you know, my way of doing things is trying to use that traditional ecological knowledge, make it community based like it is, and then grow out our traditional foods 
through a number of things that would allow us to feed ourselves first. You know, I, that's the main thing. I want to be able to feed ourselves first, build our communities first, because we have two things going for us. We have our traditional ecological knowledge, and we're still in a very distraught state of nutritional well-being. And so why not use TEK and, and, and some of our foods to heal ourselves, heal ourselves first. Then we could worry about, you know, con con contributing to the supply, you know, um, uh, and so anyways, I just want to kind of voice that out there. But anyways, I, I ramble sometimes, but that's okay. Well, there's <laughs> so much there to to unpack. Seriously, where do I want to go with this? I wrote down two of the points, but one is you had said this three times and it's a new term for me because I'm not in your world. You had mentioned traditional ecological knowledge. And I assume everybody calls that T-E-K, T-E-K. And you said, oh, Biden, the administration passed, um, what did they pass again? Passed a policy memo oh, policy. to incorporate, incorporate traditional ecological knowledge into the federal, into federal programs here in the United States. So in the field, how long have people been referring to traditional ecological knowledge? Is that like a, a new coin term or has that been? No, it's been around probably since the 70s or maybe the 60s. So this guy named up in Canada first coined traditional ecological knowledge. To me, it's just ways of knowing. Uh, mm -hmm. mm. I kind of like that definition because that's, to me, that's important. Uh, but it has different connotations. It's just kind of like regenerative agriculture out there. That's the big mm. buzzword. We've been doing that for thousands of years too. It's just that somebody likes to put a name on something, you know? <laughs> and yes. so, you know, I started kind of, I should, I was kind of develop my own names, like indigenous agricultural knowledge and things like that, because it's fun to kind of see, you know, what people come up with uh, and then refer it back to what indigenous people have been practicing for thousands of years and say, hey, we've been doing that too. And uh, it's just, you know, give credit where it's deserved, you know, don't just right. take everything and just, you know, get all upset about it. If somebody else coins it differently or something else like that, because uh, we're all on the same planet. We all just need to help each other out more. I really believe that. Well, I appreciate you even saying <clears throat> earlier, like, you know, I'm trying to do this because, you know, this is what we've always known and that we need to heal ourselves first. And earlier you were talking also like how in the industry um, the, the effects, you know, in like the runoffs and what they're looking for and wanting and quantity and efficiency. And it made me I'm automatically think, well, it's money, it's greed, people just thinking of themselves. And when you think about how we've done planting in communities, I remember, like I was telling the story before, this was shared, right? The, everything that was grown was shared. And everybody got a little bit of something from the outcome. And it made me think about, I think it was your grandpa or maybe your dad had said something like with the harvest, you should at least have, I think it was three years, three years stored corn, you know, to just be prepared. So you even think about the, the thinking of our ancestors, our relatives, they knew about savings. I mean, that, that was a, that was a form of investing really. <laughs> They understood that and they, they understood about being prepared. They understood about community wealth. So anyway, th those were other things that came up to mind uh, as you were talking about TEK. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, um, I just, you know, uh, Native people have just about every mechanism that non-Indians are looking for to solve supply, help supply the soft supply chain issue. 
you know, we, we're excellent. We're excellent distributors. We distribute our goods so that everybody would, would, would not go hungry. You know, we had a massive supply routes here in the United States at one time, uh, pre-colonial contact. Uh, and so we've done all this stuff before. It's just a matter of putting that memory that you talked about, that cellular recall back in and, and, and making these stories come back alive again to get this thing to go. I often feel like sometimes Indian people themselves portray themselves as a victim. We're not victims. My God, we're, we're way beyond that. And so we need to move away from that victim statushood and move into something more relevant. But that's to show people what we what we have been doing, what we can do, and what we will be doing in the future. That's what it's all about, you know. And so we need to we need to just move that direction, a positive direction, and that includes teaching the youth all this thing that we need to do that we've do, been doing in our past. There's a disconnect in a lot of tribal societies between native people, native elders, and their youth because they don't talk to each other sometimes. And, we need to incorporate youth in everything we do. You know, the Indian, Agri Indian Tribal Agricultural Council has youth members on their board, you know, uh, on their board that helps them make decisions. And so that's, those are the kind of things that I'm talking about. You know, we need to, we need to kind of upscale our Indianness in some ways, kind of, you know, modernize it, but not where the, not to the point where we are just forgetting who we are. I really believe that too. I relish the opportunity to come on to broadcasts like the ones you give and others that allow me to kind of talk about this, to solidify who we are as a people while we move forward and not to be the victim. My God, and who wants to be a victim? My biggest thing is recognition. And I, and I say recognition because this great author, Vine Delore Jr. wrote in his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, that during the civil rights movement, that the question to him was, why, does, why weren't the American Indians participating fully in the civil rights movement? And Vine Delore's answer to that was, well, he said, it's like this. He says, we're not looking to be equal with the white man. We're looking to get recognition. And so the civil rights movement was based upon equality and ours was based upon getting us recognized. And we're still trying having that trouble today of, of getting the recognition we need to be successful in our own way. That's why I really cherish Vine Deloria Jr. in, in his a lot of his beautiful works that he's put out there. I just encourage people to pick up his books and read those books because they're very insightful. Speaking of books, you've done a lot of studying and writing to get your PhD. And what I appreciated you sharing at one point in one of your videos is that having this piece of paper has opened a lot of doors for you. What sort of doors has it opened? Well, it has me talking to the White House and some of their TK guidelines. It's allowed me to get jobs like this new faculty position at the University of Arizona, working for the Indigenous Resiliency Center and the School of Natural Resources and Environment. It's just allowed me to get the table, you know, when federal policy decisions are made or state policy decisions are made to actually have input and so like that. But it's also taken away a lot of my free time too, because I've, I've get involved in stuff that I wouldn't have never been involved in. But I always say, my dad told me a long time ago that as I go up the educational uh, ladder and, and I get a PhD, is that my responsibilities are more because I want to create opportunities for those people who are like me and who will follow behind me in order so that they can have a better life, right? And, and better ways of doing things. And so it's a very, it's a very humbling degree for me. It's, it took a lot of work, a lot of gut-wrenching nights. But at the same time, here I am able to talk and able to voice my opinion and not having to worry about someone coming and taking it away from me. 
My grandfather always said, they'll never take your education away from you. They can call you all kinds of things, but they'll never take your education away from you. I appreciate that. And those are the kind of philosophies that I live by. Uh, that whole, you know, that whole thing is why I'm here. So, Yeah, I love when you said, you know, to be at the table. And I think that's one thing. If you look at Indian country and all the different places that we are, right? Policies about land housing, economic development, and all those spaces, we do need to be at the table. And it's hard sometimes, I think, for folks to push back to say, hey, you need some tribal representation here. And we need to have that voice, also have the voice of our young people and really hear where they're at. And I think that's sometimes I worry, but then at the same time, when I think about the future, I don't because I see a shift happening. I don't know if you see that as well of a lot of our native people really embracing themselves and who their identity is and trying to um, practice the language. I don't know if you see that there and Hopi. Oh, thank you. Our society is, you know, still tight, real tight. A lot of that has to do with the our deep you know, convictions of who we are and why we're in this particular place. I, I was thinking, I would call Hopi agriculture faith-based agriculture because there's really no separation between our religious and ceremonial beliefs and our agricultural practices and things like that. And while we're lifting people up, I really would like to lift up the women of Hopi society too, because I've seen the amount of work that they do to go to prepare for our ceremonies and our gatherings out here. In fact, we're still a pretty strong matrilineal society because I don't own the fields. The women own the fields. They own the house. They own the harvest. They do all those fantastic things, prepare meals a week ahead of time. And so I'm just the pl one of the players there. I just kind of keep things in balance in my own way uh, by raising the crops and planting and things like that. But, you know, the women to me are really the backbone of our, of our society uh, because they do so much and they're acknowledged so little, but just bugs the crap out of me. As a Hopi man, my responsibility is to help provide so they can do all those beautiful things, you know, help provide the crops and, and the security that they can do all those things. And it kind of bugs me sometimes when I see young men, myself, not planting, not doing what they should be doing. Um, and I just, you know, I'm not too much of a fan of that. I just feel like, you know, this is our responsibility. This is our role. We should continue to do this help. And so anyways, that's just my plug for the women of Hopi society and the women in general all over the place. And so, yeah, so. Yeah. I agree with you completely. I think what I'm hearing you say is a theme in our conversation is we need to be helping each other more. We mm -hmm. need to be lifting each other more and we need to be doing more, not just for selfish reasons, but for the outcome of the community, the family, just helping, continuing to do that, right? So I appreciate that. Your main message about the work that you're doing, you really want people to come back to being connected to the land, to take care of the land, to start growing again, getting the young people involved. What are some really key things that you want to see happen more? Or what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on this thing called the restoration of the American Indian food system. It's a call to try to provide food for ourselves on a bigger scale. But I'm not going to use race as, as a way to make this movement go. I'm going to use conservation, stewardship. We have a lot of areas in this country, for example, we only sit on 2.6% of the land in the country, but we sit on 5.4% of what they call key biodiversity areas. Biodiversity, in my mind, 
is very important because without true biodiversity, we don't have sustainability. And so I want to use our strengths, like the Menominee foresters are up there in Menominee and how they manage their forests. You know, some of our lands, like in the like in the mid, like in the middle of the country up on the Dakotas, how they're how the buffalo have been very ecologically sound for the environment, you know, and how us up how as farmers, how we're able to use our environment to to have the environment or raise our corn for our so our corn could fit the environment and not having the not having to manipulate the environment to fit the corn. And so I kind of want to show people that and just focus on those strengths. And so what I'm calling for is a restoration of the American Indian food system. And it's not based upon lack of access to credit, such as the Native American Agricultural Fund was based upon. The original harm was not the act loss of access to credit. The original harm to Indian people in the United States was the dismantling, the destruction of their food systems. You know, that was because we were placed on reservation within reservations. We were moved from one place to the next. So the original harm was the destruction of the American Indian food system. So what I'm encouraging, encouraging now about is that we're able to re reacquire some of our traditional homelands through different things. As you read in the paper just recently, the Virginia up on the Rappahannock River gave 485 acres back to, I think it's the Sami tribe or something up there that would allow them to possibly maybe produce their own food, right? And that's the whole thing because we're not really sovereign nations unless we're feeding ourselves. I mean, I have to say that, you know, we need to be feeding ourselves and some of us have land bases. We can do that. Some, a lot of us don't. And so we need to figure out ways to have this restoration of the American food system. And I've got some great ideas that I'm going to be putting down on paper pretty soon here and just sending that out uh, for publication. But in the meantime, I'm just like I have been for a lot of my life. I'm just kind of observing what's out there and seeing what the potentials are and trying to come up with my own plan to to not only help our people, but everybody else out there. And I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot about this restoration as I keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. How exciting. I'm excited. And <laughs> it is, yeah. So as you continue to learn and do the work with Soya in the planting fields, what do you feel you've really learned about yourself? Well, I mean, I'm 54 years old. I've learned things that I can and cannot do. I think probably one of the most important things I've learned in my life, and it took me 40 years to think about it, was to totally give up drinking. I mean, I, our people suffer enough from that, from that, from that thing. And so my thing seven years ago was to put that down and give that up. And it was tough at first, but I've managed to do that. And my life has taken off tremendously. Opportunities have been tremendous. And so then that's something that I'm not afraid to talk about or nor am I ashamed of it because I think, you know, uh, we all have certain addictions, certain problems, and it's good to deal with those. And so my whole thing about me now is to show and set an example of what we can do, you know, and, and not to let that, that vice, you know, control us. And so that's what I've really learned about myself. I'm, you know, then again, I've also learned a lot what I can and cannot tolerate. And, but most of all, I learned more about just, you know, practicing patience and, and trying to be as humble as I can and move forward in my life because there's so much out there. We're, we're in a short time space here. It so, feels so good to go up and give somebody a hug and encourage people and, and things that I, I couldn't do before I'm able to do now. That's pretty much, you know, how I, how I look at life now. It's, it's, it's just not something to ever be taken for granted. It's fun to watch those little corn seedlings come up from the ground and it's fun to plant and it's fun to hang out with my dog, Soya. Which means planting stick, by the way. It's nice, nice to to be alive in today. It's a good day to be indigenous. That's you know, that's as they say, and so I'm just proud of that. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. Thank you for sharing your vulnerability. 
you're right. Every single one of us has struggles and things that we need to work on. And life is short. It is really short. And I appreciate all of that. As we start to wrap up, I'm just curious, two things I want to ask you. One is, what are some things that we can do individually? What would you recommend that we start to think about doing, number one? Well, I think we should really support the, these grassroots organizations that are throughout the reservation lands, like Coffee Park Farms over there on the Navajo Reservation up near Dilcon. You know, there's in Loop family farms over there near Loop, and even Hopi here, the Hopi uh, Foundation, the, the, the Notwini Coalition that we have, and the various Indian organizations around the country who, wherever they reside at. The grassroots organizations on the reservations are the ones who basically feed the people. I've seen that working at NAP, 5,000, 6,000 uh, pounds of food they produced over at the Cheyenne uh, tribe up there, one of the organizations up there to feed the people during the pandemic. And so that's what I would do. I would encourage the, the, the people to support those organizations. Um, and I would hope at some point the tribal government support these organizations too, because they really haven't been doing a good job with that. And so we need to, we need to make sure that these organizations are well supported. And I have some ideas about how we can do that from a federal level too, but I'm just going to write those down at some point too. So, uh, but anyway, so that's, hopefully that's the answer to question number one. Mm. And the second thing I'm curious about, I always ask my guests this at the end, is any wisdom offering that you would like to share to our listeners? Well, my biggest thing, and I get kid about this, is that's to love yourself. I always like to leave it with that because I think we really, as human beings, we have to nurture ourselves. And I'm not talking like this selfish, egotistical type love or anything else like that. I'm just telling, talking about just taking your time during the day and appreciating who you are and where you're at, no matter what situation you're in, being grateful for those things, uh, loving your family, your partner, your dog, you know I mean? It just sounds kind of canny, kind of philosophical, wish-washy, but you really got to understand yourself and appreciate yourself because only then will your words have meaning and you'll be able to affect positive to change, not only for yourself, but all those around you. And just people are guided to the light. I, I like to look at myself as just a little piece of light out there. If it gets dark, here comes Mike and his burning embers. Like my middle name, they'll light your way through the darkness. No. <laughs> and so I just kind of like to think of myself like that. But anyways, it's just, it's just love yourself, man. I, that's all I can say on that. Beautiful. Yes. You heard it from Michael. Love yourself. <laughs> and it takes work to do that. Honestly, it really does. It takes a lot of work to just really accept every bit of ourselves. I always tell people is just be gentle with yourself, you know? Mm. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I wanted you to let folks know about the movie that you had shared with me. That was my homework. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was really good. If you can let folks know a little bit about that and, and where they can find it, I can also put it in the show notes at the end. Well, there's a movie called Inhabitants that's been getting a lot of play at a lot of film festivals. If you were to go online, there's access to that movie. You should be able to find that. But basically, it's about five different tribes here in the United States, including the one in Hawaii that basically uses their traditional land management practices to basically reinforce their community values and feed their people from an economic point of view, but also from a subsistence point of view. So it's very way, it's very well laid out there. It's a perfect movie in a perfect time because it's not taken like a movie like the old John Wayne movies where Indians would be running around with feathers, getting killed all the time by Mr. John Wayne. But it's more of a movie of removing that victimhood and, and, and bringing one of an authoritarian, uh, authoritarian stand 
uh, so that we know what we're talking about. Once again, I think one of the main things I take away from that movie is that indigenous people are still here. We're still willing to teach people how to do things properly. We've been doing that since 1492 and we're still doing it. And so it's good just to show who we are in a modern context, because I remember all the times I go to the, like the Museum of the Natural History or some of the other museums that are out there, I just see black and white photos of Indian people, like we're standing still, but we're not. I just don't run, run around wearing my loincloth anymore. I just, I'm just out of that phase. Even though I know some people say, I like to see that, Mike, but you know, it's not about that for me. It's about, you know, showing who we are, that we have, you know, we just the same, you know, and uh, our insides may be a little different, but we're still here, basically. We're still here. So I, I praise that movie. So cool. Yeah, it was really good. I appreciate you sharing that because I, I enjoyed it. I actually watched it twice. So it was that good. All right. So where are you taking off to next on your motorcycle ride? Well, I wanted to go up the 101. I have a vision. I wanted to do that when I graduated. I'd get my motorcycle, haul it over to Malibu, California, where I went to graduate school at Pepperdine and drive all the way up the coast, 101, go to the Redwood Forest, sit under a big giant tree under there and then drive all the way back across the across the Golden Gate Bridge and down and stop at different places, maybe plant corn here or there. I don't know. That's kind of like my ultimate road trip. I haven't done it yet. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. You know, right now, planting season's coming up pretty soon. And so pretty much the whole month of May, I'll be out here planting. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, if I ever go that direction, I will definitely let you know. I'm like, hey, oh, I yeah, love to see Soya and you. <laughs> stop by. I'm always welcome visitors. I always do that. I work with youth groups and things like that. And uh, it's just fun for me to show people what life's really about in some cases. And so, yeah. I appreciate it. I enjoyed conversing with you. I enjoyed learning from you. Thank you so much. I hope you had a good time as well. Thank you too, Vicky. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing things that you do for your people. I appreciate that. Bye-bye.